Hello. Welcome back to Fugue for Thought, the podcast. I'm Alan, and today uh, we have CEO of Parma Recordings, Mr. Bob Lord, uh, who's joining us, or who has joined us. He was nice enough to give me some of his time to have a chat. People are talking about how classical music is dead and how orchestras are struggling financially, or how even really just the entire recording industry is dead. And yet... Bob Lord started a classical music record label. Despite all of this talk about how uh, orchestras are struggling financially and how no one is buying albums anymore and all of those things, what is the recording's place in musical history? How can it promote new music? How do we go about that from an artistic and a business perspective? And in the past, I have actually heard some of Parma's work. Um, in fact, those artists were previously featured on the podcast here. We had Clipper Erickson talking about his recording of the Nathaniel Det uh, piano works, as well as Carmine Miranda and his recording of the Dvorak and Schumann cello concertos. But now I have CEO of said record label with us, and he has some very interesting things to say, not only about uh, the status of the music industry, how they approach um, recording projects, but also just about how he, as a musician and performer, got into classical music. And that's one of the main things that I think, one of the takeaways of the conversation that we had, because... It's not the way that everyone thinks maybe that you should get into classical music by listening over and over to Bach and Mozart and being um, a a talented piano player to be able to understand it. So listen for that, and uh, here we go. I do also want to mention in this recording that we had a little bit of, um, well, quite a lot of this kind of almighty hum in some of the recording, and so I've tried to cook out some of that sound, and so Mr. Lord's voice sounds a little bit more tinny than uh, than I'm sure he does in real life, but I've done that to try to get rid of a little bit of this annoying hum, so please deal with a little bit of that sound, um, but it really doesn't matter because the conversation that we had uh, was very exciting, and I enjoyed it very much. Here we go. And uh, so I'm really glad to have a chance to chat with Mr. Bob Lord. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well, thanks. Um, so I've I've heard some of uh, the work that that you you guys have done with uh, at Parma and Navono. Yeah, well, Parma is the, the the parent company, and we're a music production company that focuses primarily on classical music, but also works a lot in jazz and. Um, music for media, film, TV, etc. In uh, our sub companies, our sub labels are Navona Records, Ravello Records, Big Round Records, and Ansonica Records. And we release the different styles and genres of music that we produce on these different record labels, so we can keep some some type of um, I think kind of brand uh, um, clarity is a, is a good right. Way. And and um, classical music label is is maybe not such a not such a common thing nowadays. No, it's really not, you know, and I, I mean, I think, I think the word classical is just such a misnomer at this point, you know, it, it, it we're clearly beyond um, any type of categorization, and I think that genres are blending so thoroughly at this point that um, we probably need to come up with a new language, I mean, collectively as a market, to describe exactly what we do so everybody knows what it is, because, uh, you know, no one's wearing a powdered wig over here at the office, let's, let's put it that way. And actually, I've, this is a conversation I've had with uh, with a number of people um, about what do you call it if you don't call it classical? And and I 
I haven't found anyone that's that's got an answer for that. You you can call it, you know, instrumental or but it's not always instrumental and it's not always any any thoughts on on something to replace the term classical? Yeah, let's just call it music. You know, I mean, I'm, <laughs> really, you know, it's just so funny that, that like when when people the minute they hear um, a word like like classical or country, immediately it just it goes to a bad place, you know. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's an image associated with it. Yeah, I mean, how many times have you asked somebody what they like to listen to and they say everything but country? Well, you know, there's a lot of good country out there, uh, but in terms of classical, you know, clearly. We're, we're lacking the language to describe it. And the kind of music that, that Parma produces predominantly is music by living composers. We do a lot of work with instrumentalists and ensembles um, in repertoire music. But primarily, we're, we're recording and releasing and marketing and distributing you know, new music by living composers. And, and this music, it isn't easily put into a category. And you know, we're not talking about simple you know, uh, major, minor, functional harmony anymore. I mean, we're, we're really in a... Right. A different zone compositionally, um, and, and I think that it's difficult. And people ask me, you know, hey, Bob, what do you do? Or I'm traveling, I'm out on the road, I'm in the airport. Yeah, what do you do for work? And, you know, and, and you try and explain it, and uh, and it's like, so you guys do like a lot of Beethoven? Well, well we do some, but you know, there's a lot of other stuff too. It's, sure. It's a well, so what is what is your uh, your background in in music? I understand just kind of from from. Uh, what I've what I've read that it, it not necessarily just in classical. I mean, you have an incredible background in in all sorts of music. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I uh, it's it's an interesting kind of story. Um, I I would like to think that I basically followed my ear. Um, and when I was a young kid, I was listening to oldies and the Beatles and the Who and Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley and the Four Seasons and. And uh, I said, you know, I, I want to do this. I, I, I want to play. And actually, I, I heard the Who play. And I said, this is, this is what I want to do. Oh, with my wow. Life. And, uh, and then gradually began listening to, um, you know, broader types of music. And I, I was about 12 years old when I, I played my first gig. And I think maybe 13 or 14 when I started to produce my first um, recordings, actually, as a young kid. In my town where I grew up in, we, we had a really saturated environment of very talented musicians at a very young age. And you know, we're in our, our early teens and nobody's kind of saying, let's just do this for fun. There was an actual um, drive and a movement towards serious music making at a very young age. Um, so I just kind of followed my ear from that point on. And I, I began to get involved in, in uh, kind of prog rock and jazz and, and other kinds of stuff. So my ear was beginning to expand. And then when I finally heard um, Stravinsky and Bela Bartok and Manuel de Falla, that really spoke to me. The, the rhythms, the structures, the the harmonies. Um, sure. I really love and, and, and I said, that's, that's where I want to go. Now this whole time I've been playing gigs and I started uh, doing some regional touring when I was in high school, uh, all throughout college. I was playing in, in a band, which I still have, um, called Dread Dot. We've been around for about 20 years. This is our 20th anniversary. So yeah, I mean, so I've been around the block doing stuff and, uh, and it's been crazy, but, but through that, I, I basically, um, began to do a lot of work in, in custom audio composition and working for um, creating music for like independent films and ad agencies and stuff like that. And um, classical had always been a passion of mine. It had always been something which I loved. And when I got the opportunity to really uh, become professionally involved in it, uh, I, I feel like I took to it like a fish to water. Just as a producer, you need to always be familiar with different um, types of music and techniques and styles. And I think all of the work that I did in other markets, in other areas, in other genres, in other music, when I brought those techniques and those concepts to classical, 
uh, into you know orchestral music, chamber music, you know, choral music. Um, I think it really worked out well, and, and it's worked out well for the company because I don't believe that this is a company that was uh, a, a traditional one. We we didn't all go to conservatory here. I mean, not everybody right. was playing Bach at age at age three at this company, but we, um, <laughs> but, we, we but we come at it from a different angle, and I think it, I think it works really well. Interesting, and that was kind of one of the questions I, I was going to ask too. Is kind of uh, from a. Uh, a broader perspective, how kind of A informs B, like you mentioned, the rhythms and things of Stravinsky or Bartok, that, that's something that um, to maybe an outsider, they might seem unrelated, but from someone who who does those things, they're they're probably far more similar than we might think. Oh, yeah. I, I think there's so many more similarities in music than there are differences. And I think that the, the beauty of this bizarre time that we're in right now in terms of the technological advancements and streaming and all the upheavals that we see in the economic aspects of the market, these have been only magnificent things, in my opinion, for the artistic expression um, and, and, and the aspects of music making which are, uh, are ones which are open to hybridization because now people aren't so, so afraid of, of doing A, B, and C. Whereas way back in the day, it was not, you can't do that if you're doing that. It was mutually exclusive. Um, it doesn't happen like that anymore. Right. And, and I'm, really, I'm really happy to see it. Well, and so that was kind of something else that I, I'm thinking, curious about is, is um, you mentioned new music. Um, from the standpoint of, you know, it, it could be either choosing programming for, for the concert hall as, as an orchestra or for albums. How much does... I mean, there's always risk. How does risk and kind of popularity and newness play into those decisions where, you know, maybe yet another Dvorak symphony or Beethoven's Emperor Concerto would, you know, bring in ticket sales, but does the world need another recording of Beethoven's Fifth? Well, the answer is absolutely not. I mean, I think that's that <laughs> in, indisputable. Now, do we need it? No. Um, is there still something to be said in the context of an interpretation of that piece? Yeah, definitely. And I think... You know, right. looking back at my my younger life, when I was um, when I was a boy, the first music I encountered in, in terms of serious music was like all other boys of my age. I'm 40 years old this year. All guys my age and kids my age, we heard classical for the first time in Warner Brothers cartoons. We heard jazz for the first time on Mr. Rogers, and we heard right. you know, really wacky orchestrations on on Tom and Jerry. So I I did not have a perception at at a young age of why there were so many different recordings of a piece of music, you know, I mean, Penny Lane was Penny Lane to me when I was a kid, I didn't get it. Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, as it got older, I, and, and again, to be honest, the, the kind of, the more traditional classical stuff, it didn't appeal to me until after I had really gotten involved in the kind of more 20th century music where I, I had an entry point. I could understand it better because of my, my rock and jazz background. Right. And you move know? back. Yeah. It was really, really key. Now, of course, I mean, Obviously, you know, Bach is the king. I mean, this is, this is the way it sure. goes. But I think as far as risk, you know, you, you bring up an interesting point. Um, I believe that there, it's clear that there's been a, a huge stagnation in the, in the market, in, especially in terms of live performance. And, and we are still hogs feeding at the trough. And we have people who are donating money and they have a particular reason that they want to hear particular music. And so we try and make them happy as performing entities. I, I think that this has been a really destructive process. And I would like to think that companies like Parma, I think we do it in particular, but I think there's other companies out there, you know, trying to stick a stick in the spokes of the wheel and, and to try and somehow arrest this process. I think the risk is a huge issue and mitigating risk is a giant issue right now in terms of, 
um, where artists are in the marketplace because we can no longer depend upon selling records to make a living. And by the way, it's not like a lot of classical guys are selling like girly tees and baby onesies for merchandise, you know, (laughs) right. I mean, these are the revenue streams that that we, what we cannot avail ourselves of. So, so thinking about how to do something which um, will be artistically satisfying and economically viable, I think as a creator, that's a huge giant challenge. Uh, and, And I, I do believe that it's incumbent upon people now to begin to think about um, how you can communicate with an audience without rehashing the same stuff that's been done over and over and over again. We had a little bit of downtime during the conversation while we waited for some of our noise to be reduced. And um, so Bob and I chatted a little bit about his own experience as a musician, how he has no formal training. He and I both are English majors, but how uh, from a very young age, if you go and read Bob Lord's Wikipedia article, uh, you see what kind of experience the guy has in all sorts of areas of music. Um, He talked about, you know, starting gigs and being on the road from a very young age and how um, two things, on-the-job training, being in the environment and figuring it out, and then along with that, failure how failure is such a, an important part of uh, the learning process, you know, if you can learn from those mistakes. And so he talked about how that informs a lot of his business decisions and his approach to uh, record labels, be it classical music or jazz or anything, and how that helps them do what they do. It's, it's amazing. When you go in a pressure cooker, how, how you can abbreviate the, the development time. And, um, and I think, I think that there's a lot of folks in the classical world, in the serious music world, in our, in any market, any musical world where people are afraid to fail and they're afraid to go out there and to do something. And there's a lot of analysis paralysis that I see in a lot of people. And it's, it's interesting that the artistic impulse, the people who are, are the most inclined to make art are sometimes the least equipped to be the ones to actually present it. And, and I think therein lies where, where Parma, yeah, where, where Parma does our work. We talked about the example of how perhaps the R&D people who are very adept at coding and creating are not necessarily the people who can uh, design or promote those ideas. And so it does take uh, a number of kind of different talents and skill sets or even personalities to be able to execute any kind of project. Bob continues. Well, you know, you bring up a very interesting point because there's two ways of looking at it. On, on the one hand, um, when I started Parma, I started from scratch. I had uh, basically a personal assistant, to send, uh, a de facto personal assistant who was helping me out um, part-time. And, uh, and I had um, a fellow who had worked for me at a, uh, two previous companies, uh, one of which I owned, one of which I, I ran and managed, record labels both. And basically said, all right, I'm going to start this thing. I'm going to make this all go. And, and bit by bit... As we got busier and busier and more and more work and we're doing more and more projects, um, I was able to offload the items that I was handling. So I have literally done the job of everybody in my company. And we've, we've got about uh, 20, 20 or so full-timers here. And I've done, I've done all that work. And so, so no one can tell me, you know, well, Bob, it's too difficult. Well, I've done it already. <laughs> right. now, now, on the other hand, <laughs> really important to know when you need to yield control to the specialists and to, to tell them, I trust you fully and completely, and you're going to do a great job doing it. You know, when I was a little kid, my, my dad said, we used to go fishing all the time, and my dad said, let's just be clear about this. We are not fishermen. We are men who fish. 
And I said, ah, yeah, I get that. You know? Got it. I, I, I've engineered plenty of recording sessions, but I am not an engineer. So let's, let's, let's be clear about that. And I think it's important that you need to know what the edges of your, um, of what your, your limitations are. And for us, the goal with working with the artists with whom we work, the composers and the performers, is to say, you do what you do best, which is to make the music. We're going to do what we do best, which is to handle that music. And essentially, you're going to have all of the control and none of the responsibility. It's, it's like a dream scenario for me when I was a kid, thinking about, well, what would I want? I'd want all the control and none of the responsibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah, and, and that's how we've basically oriented the company and the projects that we do, where the artists are in control. They have their hands on the rudder. But we're the ones who have staffed the entire ship, and we know the water. We know exactly where all the all the submerged uh, you know, rocks are, and, and we know what to do, and more importantly, what not to do. And I think that's sure. um, that's what we bring to bear for, for our projects. As, as far as risk is concerned, you know, and you mentioned um, new music. Um, you know, the, there was a time where Beethoven was new music. Yeah. For 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 Beethoven as an individual, perhaps not not as much as kind of in the in the big scheme of things, but he also did not have the advantage of uh, recordings, be it you know CDs or MP3s. He kind of had his um, he had to make the concert rounds and publish his music and and, and perform. Where does the recording fall in in the um, kind of in in music history? What is its place in promoting new music? Because some folks say you have to hear this live, and others say, "Well, recordings make it more available." Well, the simple answer for me, in, in my opinion, is that so much new music is one and done in terms of performances that the right. uh, that the recording is now, I think, as vital, if not more so. I, I, I honestly, I think it's much more vital uh, because there's longevity involved. There's a, the capturing of a definitive interpretation, and in new music. We have the benefit of having the composer sitting there telling us exactly what he meant by that dynamic marking. And, and in fact, changing orchestration in real time when it becomes apparent in the session that, well, you know what, as a tutti, this isn't going to work. But if you really want to get that effect high up on the bass, then, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. And it's, I think it's the most crucial thing. Now, this is coming from a guy who has played like a couple thousand gigs in his life, who toured uh, all over the United States. Um, and I was obsessed with playing, playing and performing. And I think as I've gotten older, I've, I've changed quite a bit. And I had a, um, a conversation when I was a much younger man with a good friend of mine, a great trumpet player. And he said, listen, Bob, what you're doing is crazy. I mean, you know, the amount of gigs that your trio is playing, considering the kind of music that you play, which is utterly inaccessible, it's, uh, it's extraordinary. <laughs> and, and he said, I've never seen anybody do anything like this. He said, but... I blew a lot of great solos out on the road and they're still out there somewhere. So don't forget, you need to capture this. And, and that really stuck in my head. And I realized that the function of that conversation now, you know, 20 years or, you know, 15 years later is that um, we've been able to help capture this new music, which otherwise might not have a life. And I think it's so difficult to, um, to get people interested in something which they're not familiar with already. It's so hard, you know? And I look back on, on these, these great artists of prior times and, and you really begin to wonder about intent. You really wonder what was the, what was the intent? What was the voice? Um, you know, Homer wasn't a writer, you know, this is an oral tradition. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and like you go back through time and, and you realize how little we really know about stuff. And I think that recordings and the, the time that we live in, it's just a great opportunity to put a flag in the sand. Um, 
But I guess the downside to that is we really haven't figured out how our digital files are going to decay over time. So let's see in a thousand years what's yeah. out, right? <laughs> Well, I've, I've, and I feel largely the same way you do from the standpoint of, you know, I've been surprised uh, just kind of what's available in the classical music field in iTunes. And I think that has kind of come through more recently. You know, I can, I can do a search in iTunes for something from, you know, symphonies of Walter Piston or the, the Roger Sessions violin concerto or something, and it's in iTunes. And so the, the chance that you're going to have as a human being to walk into a concert hall and hear that work is, I mean, close to, close to zero, but we have the chance to hear a recording of it. And so, like you said, that, that idea of, of preservation and not just preservation of, of a performance, but of what is close to an ideal performance, hopefully. Absolutely. Um, You literally hit the nail on the head. That's exactly it. It, As close to the intent, artistic intent as we can get. It's, It's really important. And so I do wonder, maybe you know, we have we have, um, like you mentioned, with with kind of the the uh, spoken tradition, some of the the tradition of performance of Mozart or of Bach. We know, for example, there was no pedal for the the keyboard yeah. instruments that Bach played. But you know, could could it be that if Beethoven were around today and and he heard a performance of of some of one of his pieces and he would go, "Oh my God, you guys, that's not what I meant." Oh, I would you imagine know, I guess. irascibly pissed off at everything he heard. You're right. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah, and, I, I, and yeah, and, and, and there's so many different. You know, think of think of the earliest recordings of some of Beethoven's symphonies. The very um, well, maybe not even really that early of of Carrion or Bernstein, where um, it's it's this heavy kind of romantic thing, and then then you have people like. Um, Rene Leibovitz or someone who comes around and does a very classical kind of lighter, brighter. It's hard to say that it's wrong, but they're just different approaches, and it's great to have them on on record. I think that the a big thing which has always been a bugaboo for me, and before I be, became seriously involved in this music when I was a kid, you know, in my teens, I, it, it struck me that notation was so radically insufficient, uh, so poorly done. I mean, the, the whole idea of specificity is that it should be specific and that, in that right, yeah. you have such a limited range of, of ways to explain it. And then on the other hand, you know, when you get into like graphical notation and everything, then you become so oblique that it's, it, it's no longer universal. Um, this is a difficult thing. And I, I do think the recordings, they have that function of, of creating that definitive version of it so that you do have something to reference. I mean, in the end, you know, the, the score is simply a, a representation of what, what is a, a, a sonic art. And it right. has the same relationship to a building that, a, that a, a blueprint does because the blueprint and the building are not the same thing. So I think the end result is the sound. That's the goal. It's not, not the score, not, not the music. It's the sound that it makes, I think. And, um, and that's why I enjoy doing my job. And, and as an example of that, actually, uh, a previous guest on the podcast, uh, Mr. Carmen A. Miranda, the, the mm-hmm. cello concertos, yeah. phenomenal sound on that album. Oh, thank um, you. I was, I was actually, before I had, I had spoken with him and read some of his, his writing about the, his research about the, uh, the Schumann work, I was a little bit, I don't want to say apprehensive, but they're such common, I mean, they're such respected pieces in the repertoire that it kind of, what we were talking about earlier, I, I don't know uh, what, what 
maybe was was new or special about these and then i heard the album and i was i was definitely convinced especially after his kind of um story and his personal attachment to it but when you when you go and sit in um i guess in most cases for something like that it's a, it's a concert hall um like you said you follow your ear you just know what's right and what's not yeah i mean well uh, look i think there's a couple ways to to analyze it um you always, as a producer, you always need to balance between what you know is the way that has been accepted in the past, you know, and you, you can you can extrapolate from that what I mean in terms of um, economics and reviews and all the rest. And then right. you can also take a look and say, well, <laughs> why the hell would I ever do something that's been done before? I mean, this has been the 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 driving thesis of my life has been I just... <laughs> it's insane to me to, to, to do this. I mean, I wrote a blog post a couple of years ago about, you know, I, I think I went online. It was like 2014, 2013, something. I'll have to dig it up. But I think there were 27 recordings on allmusic.com of, um, with Beethoven's, I think it was the fifth actually, uh, 27. Imagine. Surprise me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Imagine if there were 27 versions of, you know, can't buy a thrill by Steely Dan being recorded every year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't work that way, right? So with, with Carmine, what was fascinating, what is fascinating is um, you have a young guy who is supremely talented and understands the tradition fully and completely, and yet is willing to throw it, throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say, you know what, I'm going to do something differently. And I'll tell you, it takes great guts to go into the Czech Republic and to tell Czechs who've played Vorjak more times than, you know, <laughs> right. I even admit that they got their tempi wrong, you know? <laughs> And, uh, and how to do their how to do their composer? Absolutely, and it was it was an interesting interesting session um, for that reason and many others. And uh, and and again, it's this like to go back to how what you were saying before the idea of um, new music being a risk. Well, I think all music is a risk, and all of it is. Well, how do I do what I want to do and do it in a way that's um, that's going to have some validity? Because uh, it's easy to make art and music without validity. Um, it's easy. I mean, you can do it all. People do it all day long, but it's sure. What, what is new about it? What do you bring to it that nobody else is? And Carmine is a great example of the type of repertoire artist with whom we like to work. They're not simply retreading. They're not simply um, automatons with wonderful technique. They're really doing something differently with the music itself. And, and he's a good example too, because he had, he has kind of a personal, um, attachment a story a connection with what it is that he's performing it's not just everyone does the chopin etudes let's do the chopin etudes if you're a pianist he had great things to say about the works yeah exactly exactly you know i I had a discussion with the string quartet down in um in houston uh who shall remain nameless for now but looks like we're going to be doing their debut album uh with them and, and recording and releasing it and i think these guys actually have the chance to be one of the true top um ensembles in the u.s they are a magnificent magnificent group all from rice university and they're 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 just terrific and i had a lot of deep conversations and had to continue to have um with one of the members of the group and i think that a lot of people come to me and to my company and they look at me and us as a conduit which we are and they come to us with um a vision that is somewhat fully formed, if not completely. Of course, we bring a lot to the table when we're in the studio in, the, in terms of the marketing, um, the angles, the stories we tell, the graphics, the whole thing. Right. But I think a lot of people, um, they, they come uh, with Athena fairly fully formed from the head of Zeus. And this gentleman, yeah. he came to me and basically said, 
I'm coming to you cold and, and, and completely blind. What should I do? And I was so delighted to have that conversation and to continue to have it because interesting. That's, that's what a producer does. That's what I'm supposed to do is to really work to help develop the concept and the idea. You know, we sat down and we said, why in the name of hell would you just do the stuff that you, that, that you think you should do? <laughs> that was the first thing. Well, you know, we should do some hard yeah. we should do some Beethoven. No, 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 don't do that. You know? So I, we have a really interesting program um, coming together with these guys that is not about a particular genre, not about a particular um, style. It's about themes. It's about concepts. It's about, I said, what do you want to say? What are you trying to actually say with your music? What is it that you want to express? And, you know, and this is not something enough musicians ask. And I think, you yeah. know, a great example of an album like this, which is the one that I, I, um, I gave to the quartet to listen to, is the album Have a Little Faith by Bill Frizzell. I believe it came out in 92. And on the album, um, Frizzell, when, on first blush, you look at it, and you say, none of this music makes any sense. He does a version of, um, of Billy the Kid. He does a Madonna tune. He does uh, stuff <laughs> by, Muddy, by Muddy Waters, does some Ives, does some Sousa. Um, and, wow. and you realize that this is actually Bill Frizzell's meditation on America, on the concept of American music, of what it, what it wow. means to, to be an American creator. And, and you get this, um, these amazing versions of these tunes that on, you know, if you look at it on the back of the record, you go, what in the name of Christ is this guy doing? And then you hear it and you realize it's genius. I, yeah. I wish more, more people in the classic, quote unquote, classical, modern, romantic, whatever you want to call it, in the music world, were thinking more thoroughly about what those concepts are as opposed to what it is I should be doing. That's, you know, that's the big thing to me. Well, are you, and this is, this is something I, uh, I read about recently, it's called the Abilene Paradox. And in short, it's this idea where everyone agrees to do something that actually none of them want to do because they think that everyone else wants to do it. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. I've seen that before, yeah. I, and I wonder if, like, pianists, for example, just use that example, is like the young pianist is thinking like, well, uh, you know, the first concerto, let's say, that a young pianist learns maybe is one of the Mozart concertos because of history and technical stuff or whatever. But the pianist thinks, well, you know, I I'm supposed to do, I'm supposed to perform the Chopin etudes and so I'll perform the Chopin etudes. And then the audience is thinking, God, he's going to perform the Chopin etudes again. But but it is, none of this is spoken or communicated. And so both parties are maybe a little bit unhappy. I don't, it, it seems like perhaps that could be the case. I, I think that's definitely the case. I really do. And I think it, it's much more so in terms of, um, I think in terms of instrumentalists and, uh, and, and, and rep repertoire works, because, you know, living composers, guys that are making new music, uh, maybe, maybe too much. So they just want to do what they really want to do secretly. And they're going to do it no matter what at the expense of right. whatever. I, but I think you bring up a good point where um, I think a lot of people end up getting backed into uh, expression that they, they might not have needed or wanted to make. But this is true of life. Everybody gets backed into, in, into positions yeah, or professions true. that they don't want to be in. And you know what? They, they just – it happens. It, it really happens. In, in our culture, unfortunately, uh, we live in, a, in an environment where, you know, nowadays you've got to go to college. And if you go to college, you've got to know exactly what you want to do. And if you don't know exactly what you want to do in the, in the, the first uh, semester, then you're on the six-year plan. Good luck with that, you know? Yep, hope that works out for you. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a crummy situation, and, and we, don't, we don't have time uh, anymore to kind of explore the water. And I, I think um, to kind of go back to where we began the conversation, you know, I've, I've had a musical, a long musical career. I've put out a lot of records myself, uh, played a, play a lot of gigs, performed quite a bit. Um, 
and have been fortunate enough to do a lot of interesting stuff. But I think, you know, the funny transition was that eight years ago, I started Parma, eight, eight, and, eight and a half years ago. And it's been um, a whirlwind. I, I work constantly. I'm, I'm up at hours that are obscene. Uh, I'm traveling all the time. <laughs> and I'm, I'm multitasking like crazy. And what happened was my trio, you know, we went from being uh, an entity, which this was what we wanted to do with our, our lives, you know, things transitioned and, and it no longer is the, 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 the primary driver in terms of what we want our, um, our vocation to be. As a result, the work that we do now, it's the best art that we've ever made. There's, uh, there's no, nothing holding us back. There's nothing telling us what we should and shouldn't do. And now I think we're actually doing what we should have been doing the whole time, which is saying, screw it. We're going to do whatever the hell we want. And, uh, and it's been great. Right. Yeah, it's wild. You know, and I, I, sh I should say just, just for the record that there is a, a very clear separation of church and state in Parma. And you will never, ever, ever hear any of my music or any music by any of my employees or any of my staff anywhere near a Parma recording on, a, on a, one of our labels, on a record, on a concert. Never. There, Interesting. Yeah, I believe strongly that you cannot commingle these things and continue to do the right thing. So I tell all the, the folks who come into the company, you know, that when, when we do interviews and we're hiring new positions, if you think that this is a spot to come in and to feather your own nest, you are, you are grossly mistaken. And you should probably leave right now <laughs> because this is about the, the composers. It's about the artists. And and nothing bothers me more than going to look at one of our competitors' websites. And I go online and I see the first album right up on the front of the page. Right at the, on, the, on the front of the website is the album by the guy who owns the company. That, it's titled Nepotism. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I think that you can start off with the best of intentions, but water seeks its own level. And um, yep. it, it's, really, it's really important to us. And our job here is to focus on new music, living, living composers, you know, working artists, and to help them do what they can do, not to not to help our own careers. Very well said. No, that's something I hadn't thought about. And yeah, that's um, it's like you said earlier, it's a conduit, but it's but it's more than that. Um, the this is the, the the question I asked earlier about um, kind of the the place of recording versus live performance is one that I've kind of been kind of thinking about recently because I've been to a few recent um, concerts. Uh, one of a of quite a well known quartet who performed here in Taipei, uh, last week. And I was sitting next to a person who talked about how much she's a violinist, who talked about how much she hates modern music. And she sat through the Taiwanese premiere of, um, the, the revised version of the Pierre Boulez quartet. Mm -hmm. And when it finished, she turned to me and she said, this is music that people need to hear live. Huh. And and I I agree the the Boulez the the full version is like a forty five minute quartet and it's not approachable music. Yeah. Um, and I kind of banged my head against a wall with it listening and listening and listening and thinking you know good thing I have a recording of this so I can do this. But then there is that point when you hear it live and you you might not say I get it but you might say I almost get it. But I think they're kind of both necessary and so you know for folks all over the world, like you travel all over the world to be able to, to share that kind of music, especially new music with folks is, um, a privilege, I imagine. It, it's a complete privilege. Uh, I think I have a couple thoughts on what you just said, but from the standpoint of privilege, uh, to be able to sit in a studio with composers day in, day out 
and to meaningfully interact with them in a, a collaborative and creative sense. And to be able to um, go just, you know, eyes deep into scores and understand things from a different perspective and, and look at different combinations and concepts and see what works and what doesn't. This is, this is the most fun thing you could possibly imagine for a guy like me. You know, it's, it's just tremendous. Um, I love problem solving. I love, uh, I love trying to find different solutions to, to existing problems. I think I like mitigating risk. I like helping. I like making sure that, that things are going the way that they need to go. And I think it's, uh, I think that's the primary function that, that I play and that the company plays. But to go back to what you said about, about the Boulez piece, you know, yeah. the live experience with anything is, is vastly different. And I, I can think about seeing the same paintings in books as a kid that, you know, I go to the Hermitage in, uh, in, in St. Petersburg, or you go to the Louvre or something, and, and there you see them in the flesh. And it's the same, but it's not even remotely the same. There's, there are yeah. layers of understanding that you get um, that, for example, you and I are missing right now, body language, eye contact, um, sure. all, all, scent, all of, the, the, all of the things that they, they come together to form the impression of, of a person or an experience. Um, they're missing when you are not physically there. And I do understand that. I, I think that the, the trade-off that I, I, I described earlier where we can achieve a degree of permanence or a degree of um, dispersion. I mean, you know, we, we, we can get the music out further, wider, longer, farther um, by, by reproducing it. Well, that reproduction is a little bit different than what the, the actual thing is. And in, in, in seeing the heaps of paint, seeing the canvas through the, through the paint, these things have an impression on how we understand art. And I, I do think it's the same thing um, when it comes down to, to live performance. And when I was in Russia this past summer, I saw um, Gurgiev conduct. And, oh, yeah. And it was, um, it was intense. extraordinary. It was, it was yeah, intense, yeah. It was, He's a very intense human. <laughs> yes, when you see a, a man wield a toothpick like a mighty weapon, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's interesting. But, but I would say I, I've, heard, I've heard his recordings hundreds of times, but sure. I'd never seen him and heard him conduct in the flesh. And it was a completely different experience. Yeah. He was here. He was here actually close to about a year ago and he conducted the Munich Philharmonic uh, and they played for the latter half of the program was uh, the Bruckner four. Mm. And it was one of the, it was one of the top, the top live music experiences I ever had. It was really? phenomenal. Oh, it's awesome. Um, but, but I think that that, someone who argues for for the value of live performance you know the these two things are not mutually exclusive yeah. how many people as as famous as as valery gergiev is how many people have actually heard him live and so what a nice thing it is to have his recordings of be it bruckner or mahler or, or the his uh, prokofiev cycle whatever it is you know it's far far better than nothing and so what a what an excellent kind of a almost a kind of cataloging of history to be doing Absolutely. and and how ballsy to start a classical music label <laughs> yeah but i mean you know look if you think about about the live experience it's like it's like you know a door-to-door -door salesman right you with eye contact with physical presence there's a, an ability to persuade that doesn't exist um in a letter or on the phone and, right, and yes. i think i think that's what your your colleague was getting at uh regarding um the boulez is that there's, there's a cell in there, 
that is uh, that exists in the live um, context. It doesn't necessarily exist in the recorded context, and it's that that feeling of I'm watching it, I'm seeing it, I'm here. That's that's huge, man. And and there are recordings. There are recordings. I think that capture that. And I will say this is this is not just because I'm talking to you, but I will say the recordings of of um, those the two cello concertos from from Carmine, yeah. are are that because I've heard many performances of that Dvorak and and less of the Schumann, but but still, and it's something in, you know, you might think maybe it's a placebo effect. Once I've heard I've heard the the cellist himself talk about it, and you go back and you listen. But I swear to you, I hear everything that he talked about in that performance. And, and there are some performances of recordings where everything comes into place. There's a, you know, and sometimes those are lot, those are live recordings where there's an audience there and you can feel kind of that flutter in your heart of, of the energy that was there. And that's something, that's something. Well, I'm really, I'm fascinated by that response because, you know, there, there is a chunk of um, people, there's a chunk of composers and artists with whom we work that when we are discussing doing a project and we're explaining what the process is uh, in the studio, it comes as a very big surprise to them that we're not going to run the piece, uh, you know, a 20-minute uh, piece for symphony, um, you know, front to back uh, six times and pick the best take and, and do some inserts. Right. You know, the the idea is is a suspension of disbelief. It's like making a film, making a movie. And plenty of times when we're in the studio, you know, if you've got essentially the same music in two different sections that are that are, are spaced far apart, well... Once you get that that concept in the mind of the player, they understand everything about it. They they know it. Then you don't want them to forget that. So you go to that other section of the piece and you get it done right then and there. So you can get that same vibe and, and the and, and the tempo is the same and the feel is the same. The dynamic. Right. And well, you know, like a, a movie is never recorded. A movie is never filmed from beginning to end in a linear fashion. Of course, of course. Yeah. You know? and, and, true. I never thought about that. And why do we expect that to happen in music? You know, I, I do understand, and I have seen great results when we've been able to do recordings of, um, you know, pieces where it is possible to do the whole thing front to back, and and, and we always try and, and uh, accommodate that in some sense, whether it's at the beginning or at the end or whatever the session. But the real way to get that definitive version is to get those details correct, no matter how you do it. And then to right. put something together, which, you know, it's a multifaceted diamond and it's going to, it's going to be beautiful. And it's going to sparkle in different ways. And, um, and it's, it's fascinating though, that, you know, what you describe in hearing what, what, uh, Carmine says about the work, you know, that was the result of course, as you know, of countless takes, you know, <laughs> right. numerous sessions in, uh, in, in a ton of editing work. Um, but it comes off and it works. And, and and it, I would imagine that in, if you were to go back, is it the to the Moravian Philharmonic in that hall with that conductor and that cellist for a live performance, what you would get would be very close to the album. But for something to stand up to repeated listenings, I mean, the like you don't want to put something on record that's going to last forever that you're not completely satisfied with, and 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 he expressed that as well. That's you know that's pressure there. Um, but then also something like I was actually just browsing around on Instagram earlier and the, the Nashville Symphony uh, performed Mahler's Second recently, which is a piece that I think anyone would just be bowled over by to hear live. And the, the person commented and said it's a piece that everyone has to hear live. That is a piece, something that big, I would imagine, would be hard to do in one take. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's crazy to think about, but it's, um, but it's true. You know, you, you, need to, you need to put things in, in, in structure stuff in such a way that you're going to get the effect that you want to get in the end. And, 
And I'm not going to say that I have a Machiavellian viewpoint of this stuff at all, but but whatever way you can get there, whatever way you can make that thing happen and do it that way, um, I'm I'm all for. And of course, we have now like over 500 albums worth of experience of doing these. Wow. Um, and how do you how do you get in touch with because because in in our kind of emails back and forth uh, before we before we met here you telling me like you said you travel all over the world with with orchestras and performers and I assume now it's been close to a decade you've networked but how is it that you get in touch with because I, I had to be honest I had never heard of the Moravian Philharmonic and they performed wonderfully you know how do you get in touch with all these kinds of folks well you know I guess I've been friends with a batch of about half a dozen guys or so since nursery school, kindergarten, and all the way through our entire lives. I mean, we, we, I've got a great group of, of friends from a very young age that um, we are in almost daily contact, and uh, we, we're 40 now, and, we, and we've, been, we've been doing the same things together forever. And when you meet people that you work well with, that you like, um, I believe strongly in maintaining those relationships. I'm, I'm a long-term Sure. guy. So when I meet people that I think I can work with or that I have a great feeling for, um, I stick with them. And there's a batch of, of ensembles and composers and, and players and, and performers that the minute I met them, the minute I worked together with them, it was apparent that this was, that this was going to work. And so, you know, the Moravian Phil out in Siberia, we worked with the Siberian State Symphony Orchestra. They're terrific. Um, just a great, a great, great group out there. And, and even down in Cuba, for example, when I went down to Cuba uh, for the first time to basically interview players, I went down there in the spring of 2015. So uh, just a, a few months after the, the restrictions were, were kind of loosened for, for travel. Oh, right. Um, went down to Cuba and I had three days of meetings. I met about 12 people per day, one per hour. It was insane. Wow. Yeah, and, 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 these, and these were the, the very best, finest um, performers and engineers and producers and, and, and players in Havana. I mean, like the best, the best of the best. And so what I did was I, I just sat down we, and we did what you need to do. You, you have a face-to-face -face conversation, eye-to-eye, -eye, and you say, well, you know, can I or can I not work with this person? And I remember in those meetings, there were some folks where immediately right away I said, this, this is right. One guy in particular, a uh, producer, um, who I met him and I said, immediately, I can work with this guy. I can make this happen. Sure enough, we went back down to Cuba. We set up a bunch of sessions. We worked with a, um, a number of composers that we've, um, we've had relationships with for a long time already. We brought them down there. We did the work. I tested out a whole bunch of different people again, um, kind of bit by bit in different facilities. And this one particular guy, uh, he really... Um, he really did a great job for us. Great producing job, great organizational job. We ended up hiring him uh, for Parma. He's actually on, on staff now. And he lives down, he's a Havana native, lives down in Havana. And wow. whenever we talk, and, and we've been down there again since, we're going back down in a few months to do another record. And whenever we talk, I, we always chuckle because we both knew within five seconds of meeting each other that we were uh, on the same page artistically as, as people, um, it was amazing. You, you just have that, that sense right away. So I believe really firmly in gut instinct. I believe in, in going with, um, going with your gut. So a lot of the, the times where we've had experiences working with ensembles or, or players or composers, it, it reveals itself pretty quickly, whether it's going to work or whether it's not going to work. And I would never, sure. I would never take a risk, um, 
on behalf of somebody else that I had not already taken myself and determined to, to be viable and effective. So I, I, that's kind of a, a really important thing to me, um, whether it's going out to a restaurant or going to a recording venue. <laughs> sure. I'm not going to drag somebody to something that I haven't already vetted fully and completely. Well said. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Well, this is uh, incredible stuff to hear. And I've, you know, I've heard um, a couple of, of the, the productions from, um, from, from your out for your, your label, the, the cello concertos, and then the, my cup runneth over the, the piano oh. works. That was a, a new recording, which is just incredible music as well. In, in that one, so that's My Cup Runneth Over. Uh, it's music by Nathaniel Dett, performed by Clipper Erickson. And I, I have to say that that's one of the kind of, you know, dozen records of which we are really maybe the most proud for a very important reason. And it's that this is emblematic of why we do what we do. You have a forgotten artist. You have a composer who is underserved. You have music which is, which is being neglected. And then you have the ability to be a part of the production um, of what now is a definitive uh, reference recording of this material. This is, um, this is music which we consistently see uh, influencing people over and over and over again. And that's the ideal. That's what we try and do as a company, is, is to find those projects where uh, there's something really compelling in the story, compelling in the music, um, and most importantly, I think something that will stand the test of time. So I'm glad you like that one. It really is. It's an that was record. Yeah. phenomenal. I found that actually on Kickstarter. I was I was looking through Kickstarter and it came up and I read about the article. And before I'd even heard the music, I was I was sold on the idea. And then you hear the music and it's incredible music. So right. I was I was very thrilled to uh, to come across that. And that's the kind of thing that I think a, a music person, no matter what music you're into, that's an idea, a concept, like you like you said, that someone can get behind. That's that's important work. Yeah. Um, so we're really looking forward to what's coming up. You guys have releases every month, or, or, or you guys have stuff coming out constantly? It seems. Yeah, we got. It's, I think we're averaging about eight or so releases per month um, amongst all of our labels, and and every month it's a pretty diverse uh, kind of uh, chunk of material. But there's always some orchestral, some chamber, some some choral, a little bit of jazz. Um, I've seen everything from like um, Baroque. There was there was something um, from from Mexico. An Italian composer moved to Mexico. Some Baroque stuff, and then like you said, jazz from you know centuries kind of across time, um, all coming out. So that's awesome. It's it's really cool, and I, I appreciate um, your enthusiasm for the work. And I, I think I would love to turn more listeners on to kind of the scope of of what we do, and to be able to explain to. I think people who I, I guess I might call more conservative listeners, the guys who are, are still really attached to physical product and, and more traditional things to just, you know, give some of the stuff a shot. And I, I think that what we try to do is to migrate listeners and to bring them incrementally outside of their sweet spot, just a little bit and then a little bit further and a little bit further, and a little bit further. And the next thing you know, you're, you're open and available to much different types of expression. And, uh, and I think that's what we try and do with our release slate every single month is to think carefully about, well, what's going to go well together, what's going to sound right, and, and, and what's going to be, um, I think, an, an interesting and engaging cross-section of, of new music. That's, that's what's important to us. And I think what you hit on at the very beginning of our discussion is something that a lot of people could identify with. Because I think if someone says, I want to get familiar with classical music, their instinct is to start with Bach or Mozart or Haydn. And that's phenomenal music, but it might not be as easy a connection as you think it is. And so to start with something like Stravinsky or Bartok or, 
you know, Stockhausen, whatever it is, and then work the other way, that might be, you know, maybe Stravinsky is the gateway drug, not Mozart. Maybe. Well, I, that's a really good point. I, I believe so firmly that there are no rules. There is nothing that dictates what anybody should be doing ever I, I, in terms of art. I, I think that the concept of there being some right way to experience or interact with art, I think that's the stupidest damn thing I ever heard in my life. And nobody, <laughs> nobody should be made yeah. to feel that you're not allowed to listen to this until you already listen to that. Whatever entry point anybody can find into art, I think is valid and acceptable. And, and, I, and I know, and maybe I'm justifying my own experience in my own life, but I came at this from such an oblique angle. There are not a lot of electric bass playing, prog rock composing, classical producing CEOs out there. I mean, this is this is basically a one man yep. market right here. So, yep. so I, I, I I'm living proof that you can um, you can come at things from an angle that is completely unexpected and and still arrive at a place where you know where it's valid and, and fun and good. And I, I want more listeners to understand that. Well, I'm looking very forward to seeing uh, what's coming up from with future releases and and uh, future efforts from from Parma. So um, we'll have all of your the links to Parma and some of the new releases and things in all of the information for this episode. But I am uh, very excited, especially after hearing kind of your background and, and how you approach what it is. It's not just a um, not just a CD mill. No, that's um, that's that's cool stuff. Thanks so much for your time. This is uh, this is incredible. So I am uh, looking forward to seeing what else comes up and hearing some some exciting new um, entry points. Awesome. Thank you very much. For Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Well, that is it for my discussion with Bob Lord, CEO of Parma Recordings. Um, it was really cool to be in touch with him and to hear his perspective of classical music and how he kind of came at it from a completely different angle and how this kind of collection of experiences and background and all of those things come together to create a skill set that can allow someone to do um, what it is that they do. Also, I found fascinating the the idea or the sentiments about what place recording has in the history of classical music. We live in a time um, where we've never had the kind of access we have to music through things like recordings, be it YouTube or iTunes or or buying physical CDs. And so uh, it's an interesting position to be in, especially from the standpoint of promoting new composers and, and new music. And so uh, that was all very interesting. I think the ultimate takeaway is that hearing live music and hearing recorded music are not mutually exclusive things. I think both are necessary. And um, uh, I hear music in recordings that I would probably never hear live. And he hearing live music is an incredible experience. So if you haven't yet, you know, go to a concert and um, buy some albums. Anyway, that's it for us today. Check out Palmer Recordings at palmerrecordings.com. I am at www.fugueforthought.de. That's fugue, F-U-G-U-E. Or you can email me at fugueforthought at mail.com. Not Gmail, just mail.com. I'm also found on Facebook and Twitter. And share with your friends, leave a comment and rating in iTunes, all of those exciting things. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>